Conversations with the inspiring minds. Using design and creativity towards social change. This is Design for the People with Greg Bunbury. Hello and welcome to Design for the People. I'm your host, Greg Bunbury, and on this show, I'll be speaking to the designers, artists, creative thinkers and activists using their skills to tackle social issues, uplift communities and make a difference in the world. Joining me on today's show is Nilesh Patel. Nilesh is an architect, creative director and filmmaker. For over 20 years, his work has covered architecture, landscape design, interiors and furniture, with him overseeing multi-million pound projects along the way. In addition to this, Nilesh makes short films and documentaries. His award-winning work has been screened by the BBC, several international film festivals, exhibitions and schools. In 2001, Nilesh released A Love Supreme, a short film comprised of a sequence of images of his mother's hands in the process of making samosas set to a soundtrack of John Coltrane and Indian music. His work across disciplines explores narratives of race and diversity, equality and inclusion in relation to the built environment and how we might respond to these concerns creatively. Nilesh, welcome to the show. Thank you, Greg. Thank you. Thank you for your introduction. No problem. Thank you for joining us today. Um, we had an initial conversation last week and your experience, career and perspective is fascinating to say the least. So could we start with the beginnings of your journey into architecture? Sure. Well, in the, in the 1980s, I was doing my um, O-levels and A-levels. And I remember a two-part BBC series all about design. Uh, it was mostly about product design and it had people like Terence Conran, Stephen Bailey, Seymour Powell, and then the Italian designers from Memphis, Braun Industrial Design. And uh, what really attracted me was the kind of lifestyle of designers. My father worked for British Gas in their offices doing sort of clerical work, and my mother worked in a knitwear factory. And neither, neither of those two places <laughs> appealed to me as a workplace. And when I saw all these designers, you know, what they were doing and the, and the way they worked. It was the kind of lifestyle of being a designer that interested me. Um, you know, I thought that's kind of how I want to live and work. Um, and I suppose also looking at things like Italian design magazines like Domus. In one magazine, you had interiors, furniture, you know, Italian products, cars, fashion. And I was interested in all of those things. So it was that more than, you know, wanting to be an architect. That's great. Do you remember who made the documentary? I don't. I think it was on BBC Two and it was a sort of two, two part documentary. And it was, yeah, sort of early 80s, I guess, you know, because I was doing A-levels in 83 to 85. And it was during that time, you know, I, I decided that, you know, I wanted to do, do design. And can you speak to the political and social climate of this time? Well, I think... I didn't know many uh, black or Asian designers. And so even the idea of wanting to do design, that was kind of quite original, you know, compared to everyone else who wanted to be a doctor or accountant, you know, or dentist or optician. You know, you're already kind of being, you're already doing something original just by wanting to, to do that. And that was part of the appeal. I mean, now, obviously, you know, 2020, it's not so unusual, but at that time, you know, you were already left field, you know, by, by making that decision. And how did your friends and family respond to your, your decision to get into architecture? Uh, they were, um, I suppose people are a bit, uh, 
concern because they didn't really you didn't really know anyone who was doing that you know and uh as i said people did you know you know one of five or six subjects when they went to university um uh, although having said that i had an uncle who studied english in the uk in the early 1970s um so i already knew that actually you know there were many more options in life than than your parents might think that there are mm yeah, that's really interesting. And I find that uh, just based on my own experience and the experiences of some of the other designers I've spoken to is that for black and Asian households, especially uh, during the 70s and 80s, there was far more pressure mm -hmm. for their children to pick career pathways mm -hmm. that were more uh, realistic or at least realistic according to their perspective. Yeah. So uh, kind of very tried and trusted pathways whenever there's a foray into more sort of creative endeavors mm. it's tend to viewed as quite risky yes yeah yeah one of the things you said to me which was really interesting which was about your beginnings at least in terms of education mm. getting into architecture was that while the architectural students around you were addressing major issues in their projects like history uh, aesthetics the environment uh, transport pollution you felt that race was a difficult term for architects. Can you discuss your experience of uh, education in terms of architecture and your postgrad project in detail? Yes. Well, I um, I studied architecture with some students who listened to this comedian called Roy Chubby Brown. And, oh, and uh, I remember him. You know, and I was I thought you weren't going to know of him, but. Uh, you know, unfortunately, so I do. Unfortunately, I do. You know, and I said that's kind of you know the kind of late nineteen eighties, and um, and then also, um, unfortunately, like Stephen Lawrence, I was once attacked whilst waiting for a bus by three or four people, and I was already studying architecture, unlike him who wanted to study architecture. I wasn't stabbed, but I did have to go to hospital. Oh my god! Um, and and then another sort of issue was um, getting work. And so after doing my degree, you do a year out between degree and postgrad. And, uh, you know, this was in the 80s. It was supposedly a sort of boom time for architecture. And I really struggled to get work. And I think I was the last person to find a year out placement. And uh, I actually found out that I was earning 50% less than other people with the same degree from the, from the same university. Wow. Um, <clears throat> so there were lots of um, challenges. And, um, but despite that, you know, I did graduate and then did go back and do my postgrad. But as I mentioned, um, you know, architects feel that they can, because once upon a time, it was, you know, the profession that sort of controlled everything. And there's a joke that it's the sort of the world's um, second oldest profession. But back in history, you know, architects had much more power. But even now, um, they feel that they can tackle every issue through their work and through their ideas and, and projects. But race and racism were never spoken about. And um, in fact, even in the UK, most of the professions started monitoring the makeup of the profession. And I think architecture of the major professions was one of the last. Um, and um, during my postgraduate years, um, I had tutors who did experimental work. And we did um, similar work in our fifth year. And my project was a, a Christian school. 
but it was done sort of as a theoretical project and it departed from the curriculum. And because of that, the tutors running the course refused to assess the work from our unit. And ultimately, they passed us without grade on the basis that we produce a conventional project in our final year. And I wanted to challenge that. So I produced a conventional project, i.e. a building design, not a mm. theoretical project. Yeah. But I made it difficult. And so my building was this alternative British pavilion. And I proposed that my client was the British National Party. Um, and obviously, as a, as, a, as a black architect or Asian architect, um, you couldn't ignore the fact of who the author was of that project and sure. who the fictional client was. Um, and I had been um, uh, inspired in my fifth year by the work of this American artist, Jasper Johns, who's sort of known as a pop artist, but he makes very highly figured drawings and paintings. And he's inspired by Marcel Duchamp. And I read about Marcel Duchamp and the idea of putting a urinal in a gallery or um, putting a bicycle wheel on top of a stool and calling it art. And he had done really radical things that challenged what art could be. And I sort of wanted to do, do that as a student. Um, and uh, what I think makes that project so unusual and radical is if you're doing a creative design course, your final project is basically showing what you've learned over many years from your art foundation course onwards. Mm. And it's basically the culmination of many years' work and you're showing, you know, it's a highlight of your creativity as a student and it's the best presentation, the best graphics, you know, it's original work. And I did the opposite. I made this very ironic project, which was almost sort of cynical. I wasn't trying to do beautiful graphics. It was drawn in the way that you might do technical drawings in an office. Right. And so, you know, you, most students, you wouldn't risk five or six years of study by doing something like that, you know, to make that kind of statement. But maybe I felt, you know, <laughs> inspired by Duchamp to kind of do that. But also at that time, um, there wasn't really work in the UK. Canary Wharf had sort of um, gone bankrupt. And I right. think the people who built it sold it. And so most architecture, most architecture students were looking to work um, in Germany, which had been reunified. Mm. And there had been attacks on asylum seekers in Germany, including arson attacks. And so for me, the idea of finishing studying architecture and then going to Germany to work, you know, was, was sort of frightening. And, uh, you know, if I met a German skinhead, you know, they wouldn't know that I was British or that I was <laughs> trying to be an architect. So, um, you know, the possibility of going there to work wasn't really an option. But these were things that architects didn't talk about. You know, they talked about mm. energy and pollution and transport and housing and density and materials and sustainability, all of those things. But, you know, people were being burnt alive, you know, not that far away from London. Um so that's why, yeah, that's why I made that project. How was it received? What was the response? Well, I, um, I spent a lot of time. It wasn't done simply to provoke. And the way that it was presented and drawn meant that you, and the way that this building looked, it was like, um, it looked a bit like Stansted Airport, you know, mm. which is recognized as high quality modern architecture. So you couldn't really um, criticize it. You know, and that's gotcha. how it was. That's how it was designed. You know, that it was. It, it looked like a, a project drawn by you know a well-known modern architect. Right. So it couldn't. It couldn't really be. It couldn't really be dismissed as bad architecture. You know, whatever you thought of of the client or the fictional client. Were there conversations that followed 
regarding race as a result of that? Not, not really. Um, uh, I didn't, after, after doing my postgraduate studies, it took two years to get an interview. Um, wow. And I wrote, you know, I don't know, 400, 500, 600 letters, in some cases, two or three letters to the same architect over, you know, a two year period. Um, and by the end, you know, my letters used to say, you know, I know you haven't got any work. I just want to come into your office either at lunchtime or after hours and show you my diploma projects because I think they're quite interesting. And even then, no architect would give me, <laughs> give me half an hour of their time. Um, so in the end, what I did was I found out that there was a, there was a, I think it was an interior design. What was it called? I think it was called the Design, Designers Institute or something in London. Mm. And you paid a small fee and they would, you know, assess your portfolio. So I actually paid them a fee and then someone looked at my work. Uh, and then he actually said, I like what you've done and I'll just try and give you some work. So that's how I got my first job. So at this point, um, you've gone through education, mm. you've managed to get your foot in the door. Mm. What's your view of racism within architecture as a practice and profession decades later? Well, I think at that time it was very difficult. And, um, you know, a lot of, from my own experience, a lot of black and Asian architects end up doing all of the technical work and none of the kind of creative work. And uh, it was sort of, for some reason, it was kind of taken for granted. Mm. You know? And uh, you don't go to meetings, you don't meet clients, you don't go to the site, you don't go to site visits. So your experience as an architect is really limited, and that me that makes it difficult because you still, after all the, those years of study, you still have to become a chartered architect, like you know, like a like a GP or a, or a solicitor or accountant. And so those first, you know, one, two, or three years, um, the experience you have enables you to f fully qualify. Sure. And so that's why it ends up taking some people longer, um, you know, and uh, sometimes after a while, if people have families or, you know, they're trying to support themselves to study again after many years, it becomes you know, sometimes difficult or people get dis disillusioned. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But it was very noticeable. And also, I think a lot of the offices whose work is publicized and they win awards or they're, they're shortlisted for design competitions, I don't think there was much diversity in those offices, you know. Uh, there wasn't much anyway in architecture generally, but even less so in those. And uh, I suppose you kind of, you didn't really try to get into those offices because of that. Right. Um, you know. So, yeah, it was, it was, there were, you know, many challenges. Mm. So, as well as the uh, kind of very real practical barriers into getting into fields or rarefied fields such as architecture. Um, there's also a, a mental component where we kind of accept the status quo as creatives within these industries and we just kind of accept certain things as given. Mm. Um, I remember turning up at agencies and companies and just not expecting to see anybody who looks like me mm -hmm. for years. And I just thought it was just not normal. I was very aware that it's a very, uh, unusual situation to find yourself in but mm. there are all of these conventions and these rules and this kind of subtext that you find yourself just kind of negotiating on a daily basis and did, was that your experience your professional practice at this point it actually started when i decided to study architecture because when you go to at that time when you know you went to universities and there was an open day or you had in physical interviews 
So when you went along to the interview, you know, there weren't that many other black or brown faces with their portfolios. You, I don't know what, what it was like when you started studying, but, um, and for me, that was quite unusual um, because up until then, from the, you know, from the age of three or four to 18, all the schools I went to in the Midlands were probably 80% Asian, 10% white, 10% black. Mm. Um, so suddenly you, just, you go to, into, into a department of architecture and that's not the case at all. It's the opposite. I was, I was sort of thinking of, I mean, you have people like, obviously, David Ajay and Zaha Hadid, who are very famous, um, you know, BAME architects. And then in golf, there's Tiger Woods. But, you know, that's not possible for everyone, you know. Um, and, uh, yeah, those are, except, those are kind of exceptions, I think. I think you know? uh, part of the issue is when we're looking at diversity and representation, these extreme examples are held up as beacons of progress yeah where instead they're just kind of very rarefied individuals mm. so it's being able to talk about diversity on television someone holding up oprah winfrey and saying look yeah. everything's fine you've got oprah winfrey mm. so in terms of how you viewed architecture and your experience of architecture how do you feel that racism was expressed within the built environment um that's a yeah that's a sort of tricky question um i mean for example there are obviously buildings with the names of former slave owners which are being changed now both here and you know in america and then there are other buildings where there are statues or murals which depict either racist events or racist figures and those are being you know reconsidered um obviously you haven't got you know colored entrances and things like that anymore it's not so overt Sure. Um, you know, I mean, for example, I wanted to talk about an uncle of mine. He studied English and he actually taught at a school in, in the 80s, I think, or late 70s, at a school in the Oval. Mm. And the way that that school operated was so disturbing to him. And I'm, I'm sort of recalling um, one of Steve McQueen's films broadcast a couple of weeks ago called Education. Yeah. And, um, you know, the experience of the black boy in that school. And my uncle had a similar experience, but as a teacher and the way that other teachers behave and the headmaster behaved, you know, he was so disillusioned with his first teaching experience. You know, he didn't really, he didn't really teach again uh, because he felt that it was, you know, it was just too, too difficult. Um, mm. And actually since then, he, um, he actually has two, two PhDs. So one is on the sermons of John Donne. And the other one is about teaching multicultural education and anti-racist education in all white schools. Ah. And this PhD is over 20 years old, <laughs> maybe 30 years old now. So although at the moment, you know, and certainly since lockdown, I've listened to lots of, you know, uh, broadcasts and podcasts and seminars about inclusion and diversity. We're not talking about new, <laughs> new ideas, <laughs> you know. And um, in fact, watching the documentary about, you know, the Stuart Hall project, again, mm. when people like him were on, on television, seven o'clock, eight o'clock on the BBC, you know, you don't have that now. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so, yeah, I kind of wanted to mention what he, he had done, you know. In your experience, is there a, a situation where you will, you will have buildings being designed or built within communities mm -hmm. that aren't represented by the people living in those communities? Yeah. So how does architecture respond in terms of 
a cultural awareness or a cultural sensitivity or is it does it just not exist i think it is i think it is is changing now and uh, i mean for example in the last year i worked on some affordable infill housing for the london borough of harringay and um uh after each project they sort of have they have a team that sort of designs and develops the housing and then there are other teams that sort of manage the housing and, and the way people are you know the way those those that housing is maintained and used and repaired and so on and after each of these projects they sort of produce a report so they're building this knowledge of how you know what works and what doesn't work uh for different um members of of of, of, of Haringey. Um, so I think that knowledge is increasing. That probably wasn't there 10, 20, 30 years ago. And uh, people assume that, you know, all housing occupants are the same and everybody lives the same. And that, that's sort of not the case. Um, so I think that, yeah, that is that is changing. So, I mean, this might, again, be uh, quite a big question or quite a big topic to break down in a short time. But um, as architecture may be considered part of the Western tradition of power, can architectural aesthetics ever be a cultural or neutral? One of the things I sort of challenged in that deployment project was the use of white in architecture and the way that uh, architects often make models that are white and they talk about sort of purity, pure design, pure mm. space, pure light, uh, without ever thinking of the implications of, of their language. Uh, or often they, if they're producing a, you know, a model of their proposal, that is white, and then the background in which they place it in is grey, uh, which always seemed very simplistic to me. Mm. And in fact, that pavilion project I mentioned, I kind of wanted to make a, a black architectural model because I'd never seen an architect do that. Um, although having said that now, since then, David Ajay actually has made several black buildings and his own office is actually black on the outside and black on the inside. And the furniture is even, you know, some of the furniture is black. Um, uh, but, you know, when I was studying architecture, it was sort of, you know, the use of white in architecture. And there are some architects, well-known architects, where all of their projects are white. And uh, white is kind of, you know, purity was, was never, never kind of questioned. Uh, and I kind of wanted to challenge that. But also, you know, there are architects, for example, there's an architect I know who um, has been shortlisted for the RIBA's Sterling Prize, one of the major prizes for architects in the UK. And this architect has had an office in North London for 30 years and okay. is about 40 staff now. Wow. And as far as I'm aware, this architect has never employed a person of colour. And I'm not quite sure how that happens. Mm. And also, if you are an architect in that office, you must realise that there aren't any black or brown faces around you. Yeah, sure. What do you do? What do you say? Because yeah. it's, it's so obvious. Well, it? I think that's the thing is uh, when we talk about diversity and inclusion and representation is these environments send a message. Mm. So when you walk into a room and it's completely staffed by one type of person mm. and you don't look like anybody, mm. that sends a very strong message. When we're in an environment where buildings are designed by people who don't look like us and we, mm. we're interacting with the built environment, in a way where we have no uh, influence, control or empowerment, that sends a, a clear message. So I find it really interesting, especially when we were talking about uh, public spaces and some of the work that uh, I tried to do last year was challenging how those public spaces are used and our connection to those public spaces. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, no, I mean, to me, you know, the idea of an office of 40 people in London, which is all male, is it's not really possible anymore. Mm. You know, in the 70s, yes, but not now. And so the idea that an office doesn't have any black or brown faces, it, it must be, people must um, notice. Of course. You know, and every day at one o'clock they go out, <laughs> you know, to buy a sandwich. Who do they see on the streets? Who serves them in the sandwich bar, you know? Yeah. And yet they go back into their office, you know, and I, yeah, that's, that's, I find that, um, but it makes me angry and also curious as to, you know, how that can happen. And how does somebody in your position respond creatively to those issues? When you see those challenges, mm -hmm. when you see those barriers, what are you inspired to do in response? Well, I, you know, I did make that project as a student uh, at great risk, you know, to, to risk your potential qualification um, yeah. and also to have that as the final project that you're going to show to a potential employer. I wouldn't recommend it, uh, <laughs> you know, to everyone. But now, um, well, it's interesting, you know, again, going back to sort of Steve McQueen and that uh, Small Axe series, you mm -hmm. know, and reading about the response, people found it so moving, you know, what he did. And yeah. he also tried to do it with a, you know, with a, a diverse a film crew as possible and insisted that, you know, the cinematographer and not only, you know, not having, not only having sort of trainees who are from a diverse background, but actually having heads of department. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and I, you know, I really am um, impressed that he sort of insisted on that, you know, and um, as an architect, I mean, I'm not at that level where I'm running an, you know, <laughs> a large office and I can make those kinds of decisions. I'd like to think that like David Ajay has sort of done that. His office is, you know, is very mixed. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so I'd like to think, you know, if I was in that position, I would do the same. Yeah. You know? And uh, yeah, it's taken a, taken a long time. Yeah. Well, I mean, on that note, um, according to a survey on diversity in architecture by Architects Journal in 2020, mm -hmm. it showed that the profession has a serious and seemingly worsening problem mm -hmm. with racism, creating obstacles at every level for those from a non-white background. Um, the survey also revealed that 27% of respondents from a BAME background said they had suffered racism at their place of work. Uh, according to the, the testimonies, the problems went much deeper than name calling and um, maltreatment. More common were microaggressions, stereotyping, false narratives, denials and erasure. Is there anything, in your opinion, that architecture can do as a profession to change course at this point? I think there are lots of um, recent initiatives to improve diversity um, and also to encourage more people to enter, profession, enter the profession. So that's even starting at sort of, you know, infant, junior school, secondary school sort of level. Um, I think architects didn't you know, well, as I said, they were one of the last professions to even monitor diversity within within their profession. Um, um, but few television programs feature BAME architects. They've had a few presenters. Um, maybe EastEnders needs a black <laughs> or Asian architect. That would be great. <laughs> you know, uh, because then it becomes part of, um, you know, everyday conversation. And I think maybe that's the challenge that it is seen as um, it's seen as a very highbrow discipline um, for some reason. Although you mentioned, you know, people like you know Kanye, um, you know, 
being interested. And I think I think ice I think Ice Cube studied architecture. Did you know that? I didn't know that. No. Okay. Huh. Wow. Um, I was going to say there's there's a guy in America on I followed him on Twitter. He's called I think he's called Hip Hop Architect, and he uses sort of hip hop music to visit schools and engage people in architecture. And he's been doing that for a, sort of a few years now. Mm. Um, so I think there are lots of sort of crossover projects. You know. Um, I think it's a really interesting point because I think a lot of this comes down to narratives, mm-hmm. especially when we're talking about accessibility. Um, you can't be what you can't see. Mm-hmm. So in terms of normalizing this idea that architecture is a feasible pathway for a black or Asian student, mm-hmm. I think is a major, is a major step at school. Mm-hmm. Architecture was like, it's like you, you may as well have said astronaut. Right. You know, it's just the, the idea of it being this inaccessible, highbrow mm-hmm. um, discipline that had so many barriers. You had to study for five years and you had to do the thing for seven years and then you had to do this other thing. And I think when uh, Kanye West shows an interest in mm-hmm. architecture, mm-hmm. what it does is it takes this kind of highbrow discipline and it says, it says, look, you can access this too, mm-hmm. you know, because he's just an entertainer but he's mm. an entertainer with ideas and it's essentially the root of where all of this comes from. So, you know, I, having a, a black architect on EastEnders, I don't think is a crazy idea. I don't, you know, in terms well, you of heard like, it here first. <laughs> Cause so much of this comes down to storytelling and yes. our ideas and these narratives that we hold and, and that we adhere to. Yeah. Um, since we're talking about narratives mm. and storytelling, can we talk about your film work as well? Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, I find it really interesting that uh, in the way you make your films, you're still exploring principles of structure and narrative. Well, I think the way architects work, even if even if you're working on somebody's extension, the amount of preparation that's required is phenomenal. You know, in terms of planning, in terms of building regulations, and obviously all the drawings and the written specifications. And so I, in the films that I've made, um, I've tried to work in a similar way and pre-plan as much as possible. <clears throat> but I guess I was sort of, um, I mean, I find Spike Lee very inspiring. And you don't have to like everything he says or does. But, you know, I had seen films like uh, Car Wash and Shaft in the kind of 70s. And they were obviously, there was a huge stream of so-called black exportation films at that time. And then they fizzled out once they stopped making money. Uh, and in the 80s, there really weren't any. And then suddenly, I forget what year, maybe it was very late 80s or early, I think it was in the late 80s, when Spike Lee um, made um, She's Gotta Have It, this black and white, low-budget, 16-millimeter film. And no, no, no black director had made a feature film, as far as I knew, for like 20 years. And suddenly, you know, he made a film and uh, did something that was sort of impossible. Um, and, uh, um, you know, so I find that, and, and when it, when I read about it, when it came out, I was expecting it to be, you know, like shaft or car wash. And the the look and feel of that film wasn't like that at all. You know, it was this black and white film, had beautiful still photography, a jazz score played by his father. And it wasn't what I expected this black film to look and sound like. And, uh. And, you know, that was really inspirational to me that actually there wasn't any aesthetic that you had to stick to. You know, 
whereas all those films in the 70s kind of look very similar. No, I mean, I yeah. think uh, what Spike did that was so groundbreaking was that he was also playing with the conventions of filmmaking. There were almost films about filmmaking. Mm. So in She's Gotta Have It, uh, it's shot in black and white and it looks very arty and it feels like, you know, a Jim Jarmusch film or something. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And then halfway through, it completely dives into colour. Mm. And there's a colour sequence of this uh, park picnic, yeah. which is uh, inspired by MGM musicals of the 20s and 30s. Mm. So even in the work that he's doing, he's challenging yeah. conventions as he does it. And I think it's really interesting when creatives, especially people like yourself, play and explore with different disciplines and mediums. Yeah, when I, when I made my first film, I had worked as an architect for about five years and was really frustrated. You know, I was sort of drawing toilets and car parking spaces and so on. And I thought, you know, it had been almost 10 years, I think, since I finished my postgraduate diploma. And I thought I hadn't really created anything in all this time, you know. And uh, so I had this idea for a short film and I did an evening class where we used 16 millimeter cameras. And uh, I was going to use some of the students from that evening class to make my film. But I wanted to make my film um, to Hollywood standards using 35 millimeter film. And it was too risky to have people who are not really that skilled. Mm. Uh, so for example, when I made that film, um, the cost of the film stock, the raw film stock was about 900 pounds. And at that time you could go to John Lewis and buy you know, a very good camcorder for half that price. So I already, you know, had made quite an investment. And, um, but the film that I was making was um, sort of a home movie. And it was a film of my mother cooking mm. because she had developed arthritis from working in these knitwear factories um, in the Midlands. And so what I wanted to do was make a home movie, but to Hollywood standards. And my film concept was a film of my mother cooking but it was inspired by the fight sequences from Martin Scorsese's Raging Bull. Yep. So in terms of a creative concept, it was basically a collision. It was taking two ideas that don't belong together and would never be mentioned in the same, same sentence. You know, a 53-year-old Indian mother and Jake LaMotta and <laughs> Raging Bull. And I basically, you know, crashed one against the other. And so what I want to do is challenge, you know, what a film about, um, uh, you know, a 53-year-old Indian mother with arthritis, what does that look or sound like? Mm. And as an audience member, what are you going to expect? You're probably going to expect some shaky camera work and poor quality sound. And, uh, you know, it is basically the sort of home movie, which at that time people was just starting to upload onto YouTube, which was sort of new or images of, you know, clips of their pets or something, you know. And I sort of wanted to do the opposite. You know, I wanted to make something that really belonged on the silver screen. So we filmed it in 35 millimeter and we were able to get hold of the sorts of cameras that are used to make, you know, big budget adverts and James Bond action sequences because wow. we were filming in different time speeds. So I was lent a camera that at the time was worth more than my flat in, in London. Um, so it was like someone lending you a Ferrari. It was sort of nerve wracking, but also exciting. Um, but I didn't know what would happen. And um, as I said, I was frustrated as an architect and the work I was doing was never going to be published. It wasn't going to win any awards. And then I made this little film and because I broke so many rules of documentary filmmaking, mm. suddenly it became 
you know, a very famous short film and screened in all sorts of festivals and, you know, it qualified for the short documentary Oscar. Um, it wasn't nominated because those sorts of films are normally about serious subjects like war or famine or disease, um, you know, but it was still very exciting. That's great. And was there, or do you feel there's a connection between the themes you explore in your film work and your architectural work, or is the film work more about the things that you can't say in architecture? I like, um, I like film because, you know, they really affect people and move people. And when people come out of um, cinema, whether they've seen a horror film or an art film or action film or comedy, you know, they're so uh, animated. And people don't do that when, generally when they come in and out of buildings. So architecture doesn't have that effect on people, right. you know, whereas film and, you know, football and food and fashion, they, they do. You know, hence the kinds of magazines you see when you go into a newsagent. Um, so I'm, I'm a bit envious of, of people doing those other things, you know. <laughs> but uh, but the, the films I've, I've made, you know, in, even the first architectural film, I sort of, none of them have dialogue which makes, it, makes them international, potentially. And uh, hopefully they can be seen by people of all ages. Uh, and I find that quite a challenge, you know. Um, how do you make a piece of work that actually children might engage with in some way, and even, you know, pensioners and everyone in between? I kind of, I sort of like that. Um, so it's like you're, you're building a narrative without dialogue. Yeah, yeah. And it's just that, you know, can the, the images or the you know maybe the use of color or sound or music you know you know can you use those in a certain way to affect people you know uh and people don't have to um have any uh prior knowledge of the subject to me that's that's a kind of interesting challenge you know what subjects can you present to a wide audience um you know which they they initially might not have an interest in yeah that's really really fascinating um where can people find your work uh, my films are all on Vimeo, um, and they're, they're also on my website, um, and, and I'm on, they're on Twitter as well. So, um, although one of them, um, talking about sort of different aesthetics, one is about farming and the sort of foot and mouth disease, and it has images of dead animals. So I guess that would be, I guess you know, sixteen plus. Yeah, <laughs> because of that. Because of that. <laughs> but the others are all sort of family friendly. Um, that's great. Okay. Well, we'll include links to that in the show notes for uh, this episode. Um, in wrapping up, do you have any advice, tactics, or perspectives for aspiring architects or designers in navigating these industries? I wouldn't have any advice or tactics for architects per se, but I would say um, just recently I saw a documentary um, about the making of uh, a concert called Sleep by a musician stroke composer called Max Richter. Mm. And he's also done music for films. He did uh, Martin Scorsese's Shutter Island and Ad Astra <clears throat> and a few others. And this, um, this concert is eight hours and people are invited to come and basically sleep through part of it, all of it, the end of it. And he performs on stage with, you know, a small group of musicians for eight hours continuously. Mm. But during the, during this hour and a half long documentary, he talks about the first decade of being, being a sort of musician and his music being almost unheard. 
and how poor he and his wife was, and they had to decide whether to feed their children or themselves. And um, that kind of challenge or difficulty is not often spoken about mm. uh, in terms of doing something creative. And in the film, he, he says, well, he actually he felt unable to compromise creatively, so he could only make that kind of music. He didn't want to make music you know, that was more commercial. And also, he couldn't imagine doing anything else in life. You know, he studied music and wanted to be a composer. And obviously now he's, he's sort of successful. <clears throat> um, but I think that kind of difficulty, whether you're, you know, someone making ceramics on your own or writing poetry or studying architecture, um, you know, or, uh, you know, doing fashion, whatever. Um, I think that kind of difficulty and challenge isn't discussed enough, you know. It is too easy to talk about, you know, Tiger Woods, Kanye and Spike Lee. The successes and, uh, and the wins. Yeah, yeah. And actually, if you want to do something, you know, you 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 will do it, you know. Um, and that, yeah, there will be sort of challenges. But, I mean, that's kind of an extreme example, you know, in terms of feeding yourself. But he didn't he, he didn't give up, you know. Mm. And I'm sure, you know, okay, Spike did, you know, commercials for Nike and so on. But at the beginning, it must have been really difficult, you know. Yeah, yeah. And also to be the only, you know, to be one black filmmaker representing, you know, all black people in America. But that's impossible. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, of course. I mean, it yeah. speaks to the level of perseverance yeah. and determination yeah. in the face of these barriers and these yeah. challenges. So I think reading about people who haven't had success, if that's, you know, if there's any advice I could give, I would say read, read and study those people as well, not just the people who are published you know, you know, listen to music that's, you know, difficult to get hold of or mm. work that isn't published, you know. I would, I would, yeah, I would say those are the people that maybe, you know, are worth supporting as much as, you know, the, as much as the others. That's great. That's really, mm. really valuable insight. Um, thanks for joining us. I know you've got to get off, um, but I appreciate your time. Um, for everyone listening or watching, uh, Nilesh's career is a fantastic case study of cultivating the ability to switch between mediums or disciplines to explore our passions and the things we advocate for. Um, his work demonstrates how we can place ourselves in our work, uh, pushing the boundaries to explore and create and challenge narratives. Uh, this kind of work not only creates access in fields historically off limits to black and Asian and minority ethnic designers and creatives, such as architecture, it inspires us to create our own pathways no matter how unconventional. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Just a quick note to say the podcast is available in audio and video format. You can find all the links as well as the episode links at bunbury.co forward slash podcast. That's B-U-N-B-U-R-Y dot C-O forward slash podcast. Thanks again for listening and join me next time for more inspiring conversations. Thank you, Greg. Thank you. You've been listening to Design for the People with Greg Bunbury.